Alcohol. What images or feelings does it conjure up for you? Is it like the time you had no idea what happened after you had a few drinks on your birthday? Or do you remember feeling sick the next day? Or are you someone who doesn't drink, watches from the sidelines and wonders what the big freaking deal is over this substance? There's one thing we can all agree on. Alcohol costs a lot. Yes, a drinking costs you a pretty penny, but I think you know where I'm going with this. There's a time it takes to recover, the cost to your physical health, and yes, your emotional and spiritual health as well. Sounds cliche, but what starts out as something, air quotes, innocent, like saving money by cutting back on alcohol, turns into a much bigger journey about who we are beneath the surface. I am the Marcus Garrett, author of the Amazon Kindle best-selling Debt-Free or Die Trying, how I buried myself $30,000 in debt and dug my way out, and also a recovering auditor. Hi, my name is J.D. Roth, and I'm the founder of Get Rich Slowly. I'm Katie Holty. I am a licensed certified social worker out in Boston, Massachusetts. I do in-home therapy and school-based therapy specifically for families and children. Hey, my name's Scott Mater, and I work as a coach over at Inspired Stewardship. I work as what I've labeled a stewardship coach, so that's my own term. I help people master their time, their talent, and their treasures so that they can go live out their calling. These four people come from different walks of life. One thing they have in common is discovering what it'd be like to stop drinking alcohol. And while on the surface it seemed like the journey all four of them went on felt like worlds apart, the humanity they discovered in themselves, the lesson learned, and, and what it meant in their financial lives and beyond wasn't all that different. My guess is that whether you plan on giving up drinking, cutting back a bit, or sober curious, you'll learn something from each one of these humans. Welcome to Beyond the Dollar, where we have deep and honest conversations about how money affects your well-being. I'm Sarah Lee Kane, your host, and in the season finale, we're going to look at how alcohol affects your financial life and how giving up vices offers one of the biggest opportunities to learn about who we are and what we need to thrive. Before we get started, even though I know you're probably kicking butt in your finances, every once in a while, your emotions get the better of you. I know mine does. Personally, I've been spending a lot of money on fancy teeth lately. If this is the case, head over to beyondthedollar.co slash spending to grab the free emotional spending guide to help you manage those pesky behaviors. Again, that's beyondthedollar.co slash spending. Get ready, grab a seat, and let's go beyond the dollar. Like money, many of us learn how to approach alcohol from our parents or other older, wiser figures in our lives. And well, what you see is what begins to feel normal. The first time I remember, hopefully this the time has passed for legal liability, my father actually gave me a sip of a Corona and I was like closer to six. I was like, this is so disgusting. How do y'all do this? It actually traumatized me from drinking beer for Decades after that, like I would not drink beer because of that experience. I was like, no, who would do this? Who would put themselves through this experience? So that was my first taste of alcohol. When Marcus experience seems innocent enough, right? Like, okay, alcohol tastes nasty and you're kind of turned off until you end up being curious about it later, like in college or beyond. Then there's Scott. I actually grew up in a household with an alcoholic father who drank very extensively. 
He was emotionally distant and somewhat abusive. My label for that. He was never physically violent or anything, but I grew up exposed to alcohol as a normal. This was what you did on Friday. You came home and you started drinking and, you know, you, then you went to work on Monday. He was a functional alcoholic. He ran his own business, pillar of the community, all of those sorts of things. And yet, <laughs> you know, looking at it now with the eyes of an adult, he was an alcoholic. I think even at a very young age, starting in my teenage years, I had a weird relationship with alcohol where I would drink. We would go out. I lived in the country. We lived in a small town. So we would have ranch parties, you know, where you go out and you start a big bonfire and there's 14 year olds, they're drinking. Everybody did. You know, the sheriff knew about it. Nobody did anything because it was just kind of like, yeah, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, kids being kids, not a big deal. No matter how you grow up, alcohol ends up being this vice, this tool, so to speak, in how you socialize or navigate the world. For Scott, it was just a way of life and it influenced his relationship with it. In fact, he ended up ignoring his financial problems because of this said relationship. But we'll get back to that. Now, some people grew up without a drop of alcohol in their house, much like parents not talking about money for their kids. But eventually, something happens. I grew up in a really sheltered Christian household. And both of my parents actually met in AA. And so there was no alcohol in my house. I grew up being told and taught the lesson that alcoholism is hereditary and hearing the stories from my parents of how alcohol ruined their life and why they chose to be sober. And they're both still sober to this day, like 30 something years. But going to college, you know, I wanted to fit in and kind of experience the college life. And for most of my life, I did not fit in. I was made fun of a lot. I was bullied a lot. It's what led me to social work. And so as a result, going to college, I just wanted to fit in and make friends. And so through college, I drank more and more and more and then found that I didn't hate the taste of it and I enjoyed it. And I liked having the funny stories and the memories and meeting all the people. It definitely became a very social thing for me. Even after college, my drinking was only really related to social situations. I've never really been the one to have like oh, it's been a rough day. I'm going to have a glass of wine by myself. Like even when I lived in a studio in Boston, I really never kept alcohol in my apartment because I just didn't need it. It was only ever like going out in social situations or if I had people over that I would say, oh, let's have a drink. Ah, memories of having fun through drinking. Sounds pretty innocent, right? Much like JD's introduction to drinking alcohol. I grew up in a family that did not drink. We were Mormon. I didn't consume alcohol until I went to college. Even after I graduated from college, my then wife and I, we didn't really drink until I think it was about 30 when I started drinking wine. And that was around the year 2000. Believe it or not, my doctor recommended that it might be good for me to have a glass or two of wine now and then. I had had a panic attack and I was like freaking out for a variety of things going on in my life. And my doctor said, you know, it wouldn't hurt to have a glass or two of wine. And so I did. And again, it wasn't that big of a deal. It was designed to take the edge off. I've struggled with mental health issues for most of my life, specifically depression. The depression really kicks my ass. But I also have some elements of anxiety. And so the alcohol does take the edge off. I guess it's as good as time as any to address the elephant in the room. Why all four of them decided to stop drinking, or at least cut back drastically? Actually, let's play a game here. I'm going to play a clip, and I want you to guess who this person is. 
it's difficult for me because I still thoroughly enjoy alcohol. And I was like, I was preparing for this show and I was writing up my list and I was like, you know, wine. I feel like I'm an alcohol aficionado now. I know the not only the effects of the alcohol that I like, I know how I act on them. Like I'm a totally different person with tequila and Patron and Casamigos. And even the different gradations of the tequilas have different effects on me. Like Patron, I'm going to be a wild night. And then my personal drink of choice is a, a fine whiskey, an old fashioned, a maker's mark. I also like a good cognac. I got a guy over here now. Like that's how advanced I am. I got a guy. He like recommends different drinks as they come in. We've become friends throughout the pandemic for he's got a nice bourbon waiting on me next time I see him. But to answer your question, what happened was I'm sitting here during the pandemic and I had quit going to the gym both because the gym was shut down. And then when I went back, they didn't require masks. So canceled my gym membership. And I kept telling myself next week, I'll figure out something I could do at home. That never happened or materialized. And three, four months into the pandemic, I distinctly remember this because it was so traumatic. I bent over to pick up something out of the dryer and my stomach shook. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, I was like, what's this? Who, who is this? Who is that? Like, you know, like I had gotten fat. That's when I, I kind of reflected back over the last few months, like what's changed? What's been different? And it was a two part uh, realization. Number one, I hadn't worked out in six months and I'd been drinking excessively, probably the totality of all six of those months. I can't sit here and say I stopped, but I did gravely cut back. Being you know, systematic and disciplined is, is pretty natural to me. So I just had to remove the temptation from the house. So I, I stopped keeping all those fine, beautiful liquors in the house, with the exception of the wine. All right. Marcus does have a distinct voice. You got me there. On a more serious note, <clears throat> aside from the waking and all, making changes seems, again, innocent enough. Like, figuring out why drinking alcohol is so normalized in certain cultures. In college, it was definitely like you drank to get drunk because you didn't want to be the sober one and everyone else was annoying and you wanted to just be part of the fun with everyone. Or I think it wasn't even on purpose sometimes. Like sometimes the intention would be to go out and have a few. And then the next thing you know, it's like you've had more than one or two. I think that's slowly where I started to realize that there was something I wanted to address is that I really struggled with the ability post-college to just go to dinner and have one. Or just go out with friends and have one drink. It, for me, it always turned into three or four. I actually started attending some like recovery circles and meetings once the pandemic started. That's something I'm still working through to figure out is like why that is. And so that's, I think, goes into why I decided to stop drinking for a little bit. Alcohol had become so normalized as you drink it to get drunk that I think that made it challenging for me to just have one in that I had to almost completely like restart and restructure my relationship with alcohol to see what it means to just have one drink and that you don't need to have a million <laughs> or, you know, six, seven, eight. It's something I had been thinking about for a while, but I think it was really easy to brush off. I considered myself a gray area drinker, didn't have a healthy relationship with alcohol, but also didn't have that like rock bottom moment of like the stories you hear. Like my parents had these rock bottom moments. I feel like when you hear about alcoholism or people in recovery for alcohol addiction, you don't really think of the person who only drinks twice a month and gets obliterated those two times because you really think of justifying it like, well, it was only twice a month. It's not every day. It's not all of this stuff. And so I think for a while I was able to kind of try to justify like, well, I'm not as bad. I don't need to do anything about it. But I had been thinking about it for a while. 
that like, why is it hard for me to only have one? It also depended on the crowd I was with. I started to notice over the last year that it really depended on who I was with. There were some friends that I could go to breweries with and just have a sampling and I was fine. But then there were other friends where I would go out with them and the next thing we knew, it was like 1 a.m. But I think the pandemic really was kind of the cracking point with Zoom happy hours. I live in Boston now. And so most of my friends are still in Illinois. They started hosting these Saturday happy hours. You had half of the group that was still like, let's play all of these drinking games. And then you had the other group that was like, I'm pregnant, I can't drink, or I have the kids. And I was definitely finding myself falling in with that crew that was like, let's play all the drinking games. I think I had only participated in two of those happy hours before I decided to stop drinking. I remember shutting the computer and I was just like drunk and alone in my apartment and realized I did not like that. That was not okay. I think forced me to look at and realize like that the drinking was purely a social mechanism, that it's not something I need and it's not something I like doing when it involves me being alone. <laughs> wow. So what is it about needing to get drunk or being encouraged to spend money in order to socialize? What's interesting is that the desire for change for Katie didn't come from the fact that she wanted to save money. It was more she wanted to stop drinking because it became this necessity in her social life, so to speak. But because I'm nosy and maybe you are too, we'll look at the numbers in a second. In any case, it's awesome Katie has taken her self-awareness to make changes that are healthier for her. For some, it's become a battle of sorts with coping with mental health issues. There was no acute crisis. There was no one incident that made me think, oh, I need to stop. It's like a crab boiling, right? I wake up and all of a sudden I realize, oh my gosh, I'm in hot water here. I gained a bunch of weight. The mental health issues have become particularly severe over the past 18 months. And I feel like they're directly tied to the alcohol consumption. So it was just a series of things that made me realize, oh no, this is something that I don't want to do in my life. I talked to my therapist about this and we tracked my alcohol consumption. And while it was high, she didn't consider it problematic. I don't consider it problematic either in that it's not like I wake up in the morning and start drinking. And it's not like it was interfering with me getting work done but it was affecting my mental health. The depression had become more frequent and more severe. And every day at about two o'clock, I was getting this anxious feeling that I could only remedy with alcohol, or I believed I could only remedy with alcohol. Generally speaking, during the week when I was feeling anxious at two o'clock in the afternoon, I would have my two beers. That was by myself because I work from home and I work by myself. I have a lot of liberty to do things like have a couple of beers at two o'clock. Coping mechanism is the word that my therapist used. She calls it a maladaptive coping mechanism, meaning that I'm not seeking productive ways to deal with my anxiety and to deal with my depression. Instead, I'm going to something that addresses the problem in the short term, but actually exacerbates the problem in the long term. So while I'm not conducting formal check-ins, every day is a constant mental analysis of how am I feeling? Do I need the alcohol? Do I crave the alcohol? And I'm finding that I don't really. I'm fine without, I feel like I could go my entire life without alcohol. That said, I do still get anxious during the afternoon and I have been using pot as a substitute. And that's one of the reasons I feel like I need to check to see what happens if I cut out the pot too? What happens if I cut out the pot for at least a month, if not two months? Do things change drastically or do they get worse? Do they get better? I don't know. I've never been a pot user. I mean, I've used it to sleep 
over the past couple of years, ever since it became legal here in Oregon. But if I'm using it before sleep, I don't notice that I'm high. It's been about two months that I've been substituting the pot. And so this is the first time in my life that I've been able to observe how do I react to prolonged use of marijuana. It's not as bad as the alcohol by any means, but I do think there is room for improvement. In my dream world, cutting out the alcohol and or the marijuana would bring me greater mental stability. The depression and the anxiety has been so miserable over the last 18 months. It is just it's dragging me down. I don't even feel like my real self. It, it sucks. So I'm hoping that sobriety will help me be the person that I know I have been in the past and that I know I can be in the future. Or like Scott's, where in hindsight, it affected many areas in his life. I noticed it with my first wife, I noticed it began to affect me. It began to affect my decision making. It began to affect things that I was doing. Obviously, there's a social aspect to drinking. That is about when you go out with friends, everyone has a drink. I would begin to notice that for me, the social aspect became about the drinking as opposed to about the social, if that makes sense. I'm an introvert. I kind of need time to my own while well, I would go off and separate myself from my wife and drink. It was that the alcohol became more central to the socialization and the relationships than the actual relationships itself was really what I began to notice. Again, I really didn't become conscious of that until I divorced and got remarried. But looking back on it with those eyes, I recognize that's part of the problem that was going on. I mean, my wife and I had other problems as well, but that was part of it. But we went through a divorce and then I got remarried. And it wasn't until I was remarried and with my second wife that I made the decision to stop drinking. And I can distinctly remember the day I was a school teacher. I would get up in the morning. I would fix my coffee. And one morning I began to think to myself, I need to put whiskey in my coffee before I go to work. And it was literally the thought of I need to do this. Not even I want to do it, but I need to do that. That scared me. I didn't put whiskey in my coffee and I drove to work and I got to school. and I picked up the phone and called my wife and said, by the time I get home tonight, I want no alcohol in the house other than a few social occasions where maybe I've let the alcohol touch my lips or taken a little sip of something. I really not drank at all since that day. That was the straw that broke the camel's back and made me just go, I'm not going to do this anymore. Just because you realize you need a change doesn't mean you do something about it. And when you do, it might take a while. When you're looking to break the cycle, for these four folks specifically drinking a lot less alcohol, there comes a point when you're nothing but hyper aware of everything you're doing when you start implementing these changes. I'm much more hyper aware of some of my feelings at times. I'm much more hyper aware sometimes of feelings of discomfort or not fitting in, especially when I'm in situations where people are drinking and it's not just something I can ignore. It's learning how to sit with discomfort and learning how to sit with insecurity. Now knowing that I have to face it and figure out what the root of it is and where it's coming from. And I think it's hard, but it's a good thing. There's a story I'll always remember was when I was in, in undergrad, my neighbor's mom, who I I was very close with their family growing up. She is a licensed psychologist. So she was helping me with a project and had mentioned to me things she had noticed on my social media in college and had a very serious conversation with me about like, if you're going to be a social worker and work with clients, you need to be living by the standards you hold your clients to. If you work with anyone who's in addiction and you're giving them tips and advice, and then you're out here just 
getting blackout drunk all the time and they find out about that, why would they ever listen to you? And that just always stuck with me. So I think I've been much more hyper aware of that as well. And I'm sure you can all relate to this. There's times when I'm around people drinking and it's like, whatever, you know, it doesn't bother me. I'm careful about how I expose myself to social drinking. I think the social aspect of it, at least for me, had a large impact on when and what I would do. There's a lot of social pressure (laughs) that can come around drinking. So I learned to do things like I'd go to the bartender and ask for a Coke and tell him to put a swizzle stick in it. So it looks like it's a mixed drink. What's funny, bartenders know this stuff too. If you ask for that, they're like, yep, no problem. Yep, right away. You know, because they know, they understand that you're probably here because there's a social aspect for you to be here. For me, it was about avoiding the conversation because if I had a Coke and it was clear that all I had was a Coke, then I would have to have the conversation about why wasn't I not drinking? And it's like, I don't want to have this conversation with you. You know, I mean, if I wanted you to know that, I would have told you that. Because oftentimes this was at a work situation or it was the the work Christmas party or whatever. And it's like, I really don't want to get into all of that right now. So let me just avoid the conversation by putting on the armor is what I would think of it, of the appearance of drinking. And nobody knew. The people that did know already knew that I didn't drink. And so they didn't have a problem with it, you know. So that allowed me to socialize and enjoy the time and have fun, but not have to worry about having those somewhat awkward conversations with coworkers and acquaintances and that kind of thing. For some people like JD, it became like an experiment of sorts. I hated beer until about eight years ago. When I started dating Kim, she really likes beer. So she would share her beer with me and I would taste it. And I came to develop a taste. It just tastes good to me. So I have sought out, I call them fake beers. They're essentially non-alcoholic beers. And it's a huge market. It's actually the fastest growing segment of the alcohol industry, even though there's no alcohol in them. So I've been trying a whole bunch of different ones with dinner and I like it. I feel like the non-alcoholic beer gives me just that sense that I'm having the beer. And this is interesting. After two months of this, I find that my need for it has declined. When I first stopped drinking alcohol, I needed to have two or three of these non-alcoholic beers every day. Now it's maybe one a day, if that. It's a few a week. So as time goes on, my desire for the taste of beer has decreased. I still enjoy it, but I don't need it on hand as much. It's interesting because alcohol is an addictive substance. And I understand why a person might be drawn to want the alcohol because of the chemicals, because of the drug-like nature of the substance. But the taste, I don't know. It's just some sort of conditioning. Now, because this is a money podcast after all, Let's take a look at some of the numbers with these folks and their alcohol consumption. Oh, I have the numbers. (laughs) Generally speaking, I averaged about $250 a month on alcohol, which works out to about $8 a day, of course, or about $3,000 a year. So it wasn't the end of the world, but you know, that's a lot of money. That's a car payment. I was spending a car on alcohol. So I actually have an app on my phone that counts the days sober. I'm at 150 today. I had to estimate how much I probably spent on alcohol like a month or a week and how many hours. And so because I wasn't drinking every day and it was like maybe a once every weekend thing, it wasn't that much. So my app does tell me today though that I have saved $450, which is a significant amount of money. Well, I know for a fact the alcohol I drink is expensive. I've become accustomed to this lifestyle of drinking fine wine and liquors and spirits. So it's expensive. Yes. And I know for a fact because I still use Mint. Mint is a budgeting tracking app for those who are unaware because I had all this downtime, one of which was to look in Mint during the middle of the pandemic. 
And it was, I'm going to use the word insane. It was so insane that like we had a, a household summit, <laughs> not a beer summit. I called the missus. I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. We need to revisit our finances because what had happened is we just got comfortable. I've worked hard to get to this place. We don't need to track our budget, to be perfectly honest, from month to month. And we'd be perfectly fine. And we weren't. We just, you know, we, we felt like going out, we'd go out. We felt like doing whatever we did it. Now, during the pandemic, or in that case, during the lockdown, everything was shut down. I was like, oh, let me let me log in the mint. You know, I had to remember my password, probably had to reset it. And it was a huge wake up call seeing all the budget categories that were discretionary spending, one of which was alcohol. And if I remember correctly, with the exception of rent, the next largest pie was food, alcohol and restaurants. It was in the multi thousands. I'll go ahead and admit that. And I was like, what? What? <laughs> and I was like, what? What have we been doing? This is madness. You know, it was a wake up call. Uh, I'm sure she still feels some type of way because I, you know, I went old school. You know, I was like, we got to cut back to 30 percent, you know, <laughs> and I put us on a strict budget diet. Of course, I didn't have anything else to do. I was probably just bored during the pandemic. Yes. I have a very noticeable and a very, very specific line item that I can go back to. And you know, I'm happy to say that it, it hasn't increased to that amount. It's creeped back up because we're starting to get comfortable again. But it's easy to track and see how the choice to spend money on alcohol is an easy category to kind of go wild on. Drinking is expensive. And my wife and I had financial issues as well. And I think it added to that stress because it's kind of that fight over, well, if you're going to buy this, well, then I'm going to buy that kind of fights that would happen. I would probably, you know, maybe $20 a week or $30 a week kind of thing. So it wasn't excessive. But again, even $20 a week in a given month, that's 80 to 100 bucks. That starts to add up over 10 years, <laughs> you know, that over a year. That's a lot of money. Sure. In the bigger scheme of things, it doesn't sound like a big deal in terms of the monies they supposedly spend each week. Maybe except for Scott, since it sounds like it cost him thousands or tens of thousands of dollars over his alcohol drinking days. Oh, wait. Does Marcus and the amount he spent on his fine wine and spirits? Anyway, the point is, the numbers aren't necessarily the point. In fact, if you're making changes, you may not even be saving money, like JD and his experiment to find alcohol-free alternatives. The last drink I had was Independence Day. And my goal is to go a year without alcohol. We'll see whether I can do it. I'm not being militant about it. The guidelines are, I do not consciously seek out alcohol. I only want to drink in situations like when I'm going over to somebody's house, they don't know I'm on the no alcohol thing and they serve me something. Okay, fine. If I have a relationship where I can say, oh, no, 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 I'm not drinking right now. Fine, I'll do that. But if it's a certain situations where I feel like, oh, no, it, it's better to just consume it. The one time I did it, I made sure that I wasn't drinking too much. I want to be clear. It's not about consuming or not consuming alcohol. Replace it with anything, emotional eating, buying too many clothes going fishing, and it turns into a story of how we use our spending or consumption habits to deal with what's going on around us. Looking back on it now, it's like, well, yeah, that's legit. 
And it could have been a different habit. It could have been fishing. But in this case, there's a psychological aspect to the alcohol because it was an addictive behavior. And I think anything that you become addicted to can cause that same sort of stress and strain in a relationship. It doesn't have to be a drug or alcohol. It could be even just if you're addicted to, I don't know, knitting, whatever, (laughs) just to make up something weird. I think it can cause that kind of stress. The problem is I can't moderate. So Gretchen Rubin talks about moderators and abstainers. There are some people who can moderate. They can, for example, with cookies or ice cream or alcohol, they can have a little bit every day and it's not an issue. I'm not one of those people. As an example, I made brownies the other night and yesterday Kim said, oh, can you bring me a brownie? We were done with dinner and I was like, oh, I ate the whole tray of brownies today. She's like, what did you do? And I was like, yeah. So I'm the same way with alcohol. If I'm going to drink, I'm going to drink. So I don't do a good job with moderation. You hear this so many times, right? Like, you've only got one life, time's passing you by, blah, blah, blah. But you know, it's so true. It really is. There was two events distinctly that changed my thinking on things. And one, it was like one of those, do you remember where you were? And it was Kobe Bryant's passing. And I remember it so much because we traditionally recorded our prior podcast on a Sunday. And we sat down to record like we always do. As anything, when something tragic happens in the news, the phone starts buzzing and blowing up. I'm like, what the hell is going on? And the first part of the news was Kobe has passed. And so we took a break. We were like, wow, completely blindsided by this. So we're like, okay, let's take a break. We came back maybe 20, 30 minutes later. I took a walk, stared at the sun, reflected on life. And when I came back, we found out his daughter had passed. And it was just like, we're not recording today, man. I can't do this. The takeaway was, you know, he's 41 and I'm 37. The event for me was a wake up call. And it just kind of like started me asking more, like, what am I doing here? I just started thinking about time being more limited and precious than I was giving it before. After that event, although I had already started to make some changes by then, Chadwick Boseman passed. He was 43 years old. When I started looking at that math, these men are three years, five years, my senior. It made me think differently about time and how I wanted to spend it and what I want to do during that time. And alcohol was just uh, one of these sacrifices. Thus, I need to look at the personal and go, is it worth keeping this thing in my life? Because depending on who's listening to this, they might be, oh, it's, it's just a beer, it's just wine or whatever. But at the same time, it, it does have an effect and it does have a, a greater effect at this age. If I drink now at this age, I know it, like I feel it and it's not as enjoyable or an easy recovery as it used to be. It's a vice at the end of the day. It's a choice that I've taken to to have the advice. Do I want to continue to keep it in my life? And that's kind of, I would say for my journey, that's where I am right now. Is this something I want to continue to, to keep around and keep doing? What I'm getting at here, what these stories are trying to get at here is it's about what you do with your resources. Maybe you're not spending a crazy amount of money on alcohol or chocolate or fishing gear. The point is, is what you're doing right now or the money that you're spending on right now the best use of your energy? Are you happy with spending that time and money on it? What if there was another way? I mean, JD got his curiosity back once he looked at his alcohol consumption habits and cut back. I feel like I'm much more curious about life and I'm kind of returning to the JD of old. 
And what I mean by that is I'm the kind of guy who's like totally interested in everything. I'm always diving deep into these different subjects, but when I'm drinking too much, my curiosity is numbed, I guess. It's dulled and, and I don't explore. Since stopping the alcohol, I've been really fascinated by Japan and I want to learn Japanese. I started reading Japanese books and then uh, watching Japanese movies and then I'm like, oh, this is kind of fun. I wonder what it'd be like to actually learn Japanese. That's the kind of thing that I don't do when I'm drinking alcohol. But when I'm not drinking, this is the JD of old, and I explore all sorts of different things, and it's a lot of fun. Katie found a community that doesn't need to drink to have fun. There's a, a woman author, her name is Laura McCowan, and she started her own sobriety meetings called The Luckiest Club. There were like 300 people in these Zoom meetings. I was really scared at first, but then when I saw how many people were part of these things and I didn't have to have my camera on or anything, it became less intimidating. But then a guest speaker came in and she was one of the founders of She Recovers and her name is Taryn Strong. And her and her mom started this organization for women in recovery from anything. So it's much more broad than just like alcohol use. So I started checking out those Zoom meetings and they were much smaller, like 60 people in a meeting. So it really felt more like a community. But I definitely did tr start trying to do it myself. I reached out to a couple of close friends who I knew had also decided to stop drinking temporarily for support, but then realized that I wanted something a little bit more and decided to hop into these groups, which I think have just been really helpful for me, not only with this kind of issue, but I've learned so much just about myself and in life and so many other things because there's just so much therapeutic value in it. And just hearing the stories from other women and not feeling so alone and learning from women who are older than you, who have been through this phase of new sobriety or what it's like to be sober in your late 20s. So there's just a lot of wisdom and encouragement. I think just a place to not feel alone and to feel supported and for it to feel normalized. There's just something for me about social validation. And so I think having a group setting to have that social validation, but around something that's healthy was something I realized was important to seek and have. And Scott, well, he's definitely being a lot kinder to himself and helping others along the way. I don't judge people now that drink. They're allowed to do what they want to do as long as they're not harming others or creating a bigger situation. That being said, I think I also became more aware of the emotional and relational impacts and triggers. I think I can see it just because I've got some familiarity with some of those triggers. I think that's probably the biggest lesson is being able to hold that balance between recognizing it and maybe even being able to help call it out if it is a problem without being judgmental about it. I won't claim to do it perfectly because I don't, but I think I've gotten better at that. To take it further, it means to look at the things you consume and how you spend your money and time. Is it something meaningful? Does it serve you and those around you? And if not, what are some questions you can ask in order to move towards something that is? I think the larger impact is always with finances. We look at it as a math problem, but it's not a math problem. It's a behavior problem. It's a mindset problem. It's a communication problem. It's a getting on the same page problem. However you want to phrase that, those sorts of things are much more important. And so I do think any behavior <laughs> that moves you away from that, that creates friction, that creates conflict, that creates the inability to communicate, the inability to recognize your own decisions, it's that shift from I chose to do something to I had to do something. The minute you start having to do something, you're taking away that power of choice. You're disrupting that ability to communicate. It's that ability to make, to defer today for something that you want long-term or that ability to change 
what you're doing today so that you get an impact down the road. Whether you're married or single, it doesn't really matter. It's, it's not the math problem that usually is the real trip up because as you begin to shift your mindset and shift your behavior and shift your communication, those decisions become easier. That $20 a week goes away and it doesn't feel like a big sacrifice. It just feels like I'm choosing to give that up for a bigger thing down the road or for a bigger thing today. If the yes is big enough, the no becomes easy. I think a lot of it was that, just that ability to tune in with that information and make sure that it was clear with my wife and I that we were making more decisions in unified way. I think the alcohol is just part of that story. My current wife and I had a financial situation. This was after I quit drinking. We were continuing to go into debt and, and having a very large debt. It actually created a situation where I became suicidal because of it, which is actually very common in men. As we dealt with that and then again came together and fought our way out of debt and did all of that, what happened is people, for the money part of it, people began asking questions. What are you doing? What did you do? How did you do that? You know, kind of thing. And from that started the coaching business on the money side. Later, as I added the time and the talent, that's really because as I began to work with people on money, I figured out it's never just money. The way we handle our money has a lot to do with the way we handle our time because they're both finite resources. From a behavior standpoint, often some of the same bad habits that would show up in money would show up in time. And as you begin to work on one, you could begin to improve the other. It's just as you become aware and get more discipline in one component of your life, you begin to become aware of places that you're not doing that. <laughs> you're not living out your priorities in other areas of your life. And so it begins to improve. As you're on your journey to self-awareness, changing your financial situation, or whatever it may be you're doing to break the cycle, know that it'll force you to look at things you don't want to. I mean, there's no point in sugarcoating it. Whether it's worth it, I can't say for sure, but I am here rooting for you. Thank you so much for listening to Beyond the Dollar, and thank you to my guest, J.D. Roth, Marcus Garrett, Scott Maderer, and Katie Holty for coming on and sharing their stories. To find out more about them, head to beyondthedollar.co slash 98 for links. And if you enjoyed this episode, please share with a friend as it'll help spread the mission of what we're doing around here, which is to have more deep and honest conversations about how money affects your well-being. Tag them on Instagram, help them subscribe to the show, whatever it takes. Again, thanks for listening. And until next time, keep living beyond the dollar. 